0: Hello and welcome to the Ties Fundamental Value Podcast. I'm your host Joshua Frank. Today I'm lucky to be joined by Avi Feldman, who's the head of trading at Block Tower Capital. As a quick reminder, nothing we say here is investment advice. You can check our show notes for our complete disclosures. Avi, it's so great to have you on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: And so you know, one thing we like to ask all our guests is, you know, give us your life before you went down the rabbit hole. Uh, You know, you know, what did you do before crypto, and you know, how did you discover the space? Uh, it's actually
1: it's funny. There's not there's not a lot of life before crypto for me. So I graduated university in 2017, and basically was already in the space at that point. I discovered Bitcoin in late 2016, early 2017, uh, and that's kind of when I started falling down the rabbit hole. And by the time I graduated, I had a job lined up at Capital One, and so I worked there as an analyst for about six months, but. Six months later was December of 2017 when everything just went absolutely bananas. And I managed—I was lucky enough to, you know, take some off the table. Left my job at Capital One and tried my hand at starting a couple of ventures in the cryptocurrency space for for the next couple of years. So it's actually uh, not a huge amount of time before the crypto world and a professional career. But in college, I was—I uh, studied chemical engineering and I was super, super deep into you know all of that, all of that kind of uh, STEM fields. Always thought I was going to go work. As an engineer and then kind of flipped my last year when I when I found the markets uh, my senior when I found the markets my senior year got really interested in trading got really interested in, in finance uh, that actually led me to crypto because I was kind of looking for markets where I had edge uh, and I definitely didn't have edge in the equities markets and I didn't have edge in basically any markets and I was just reading reddit one day and I was people were talking about trading Bitcoin and I was like oh this looks interesting and then I started reading about Bitcoin, and I was like, "Oh, this is actually like really cool. Like maybe this is maybe this is going to be around." And then I had this thing at the back of my mind that said, "Hey, didn't you use Bitcoin in 2013 for something?" I was like, "Oh yeah, I did use Bitcoin in 2013 for something." Was so I actually uh, log into my a fake uh, ID or no no comment no comment. <laughs> but uh, so I was like, maybe I think I have a Coinbase account. So I open up I open up Coinbase, and I have a password saved for Coinbase, and so I was like, "Wow, I do have a Coinbase account." And I logged in. Uh, bought bought some Bitcoin. I uh, actually transferred it pretty much immediately to Poloniex and then it was off to the races
0: from there. So you went straight into the troll box right away. Basically. Yeah. Uh, my first introduction to crypto was the Coinbase to the troll box. <laughs> yeah, very nice. And did, and did you have any uh, Bitcoin left on Coinbase from before? I, or? A very, very, very
1: small amount. Uh, and I was actually, I, I think at that point I was actually like close to break even on my purchases because I basically bought the top of
0: 2013 at like 400 bucks or something.
1: Yeah, um, I, I, no, it was something, something like 800, and then Bitcoin was around that when I when I logged back in. Right. Uh, I think January 2017. Um, so that, that was that was pretty funny. It was and like, so- oh yeah, Bitcoin, like, what a great investment it hasn't done anything for four years.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. I had so I had a friend who you know used Bitcoin to buy a fake ID when he was I don't know 18 or nine or 19 or whatever. And uh, he logged into Coinbase to buy Bitcoin the first time in like, f- like three weeks ago or four weeks ago. And he's like, I have ha- like, I have like half a Bitcoin here. How did this get here? So he called his dad. And he's like, how did I get half a Bitcoin in my Coinbase account? And he's like, remember when I had to transfer you money to buy a fake ID? That's how you have, that's how you have half a Bitcoin in your Coinbase account, which is pretty that's hilarious. hilarious. <laughs> So, so, uh, yeah. So, so after Capital One, uh, when you were 22, you co-founded something called uh, Ledger Capital. So can you tell us about that? Uh, your experience and any lessons that you learned?
1: Oh uh, yeah, that was uh, that that was really that was really fun, actually. So, I founded Ledger Capital, uh, basically a crypto investment firm, or what, what we wanted to turn into a crypto investment firm, at the top of the at the top of the market in January in 2017. I got together with two of my old uh, college buddies who were also very, very deep into the crypto, crypto space. We raised, we raised some capital uh, off a couple of quantitative strategies that we had developed, mostly based off sentiment at that time. Um, so actually something that you're probably very familiar with, but this was a very rudimentary version of sentiment analysis in the cryptocurrency markets. And so we, we basically worked on that for about four months while the market fell out from under us. It didn't really end up uh, anywhere massive. We kind of had like a working a working strategy, a working product. We didn't end up raising raising a ton of capital, so we pivoted more so to just generating content in the in the crypto space. So we started writing some research reports, started writing uh, writing for people, doing a little bit of consulting work on the on the research side, um, and then at the end of 2018, we actually I, I shut down Ledger. And I ended up joining a company called Wave Financial, and I joined I joined them and worked with them throughout 2019.
0: And so, what what did you do at Wave Financial? What was your job? What does Wave focus on specifically? And and why did you decide to you know after a year there you know move over you know to Block Tower? What attract you to the firm? I know that's a lot of questions in one, but
1: yeah, no. So going back to Ledger for a second, I was really, really, really interested in just finding ways to. Beat the cryptocurrency markets, because I just knew that there was edge to be had. And I love trading directionally, and I love taking risk, And I love the idea of trying to beat the market. And so when I went to Wave, my role changed pretty dramatically in that it was a great, great, great experience. But what I was doing is I was structuring products. So at Wave, together with Ben Tsai, who's the current president there, we launched an index fund. Uh, and we built and structured the first call uh, regulated covered call fund in the crypto space. So we were selling calls against Bitcoin to generate yield, uh, built the models for that, uh, basically don't head first into the derivative space. I actually didn't have a massive amount of experience there, but spent six months just fully immersed, trying to understand, Everything that I possibly could about structured products, everything that I possibly could about derivatives in the crypto world and how we could build a really good product for, for our investors. So that's what I, that's what I spent most of my time on actually at Wave is building these structured products, um, in the crypto space. And that, that was a really, really satisfying experience because, you know, oftentimes in trading, you're just the only thing that you're building is your P and L. Like you're looking, you're looking at your balance and like, Oh, great. Like this is going up, but you're not actually doing anything other than making money. So building structured products. That was actually kind of interesting to me for a while, but near the end of it, uh, I got I got a call that Block Tower was looking for a new head of trading. That they were looking to kind of rebuild rebuild their team and revamp their processes. And I had this kind of itch to get back to the directional side. I wasn't super keen on continuing on this uh, on the structuring side. So I said, "This sounds like a fantastic opportunity." Got a chance to talk talked with the team, really liked what I saw. I guess they did too. So now I'm here.
0: And, and so when you, you know, what is, you know, what is BlockTower? Let's start there, but what was kind of the genesis of the fund? What did it look like when you first started and what, you know, how does that compare to today in terms of what Block? Cause I know, for example, BlockTower used to be involved with venture. I think that's something that's not, you know, hundred percent going on now. So, you know, how has it kind of evolved a little bit since you've, since you've joined the firm?
1: Yeah, it's, Basically, it's it's evolved, but only but only somewhat in that block tower as an investment firm is tackling the cryptocurrency industry from basically any angle that we believe we have edge. Our main strategy is just directional bias long on crypto, mm-hmm. and we trade around our positions to try to generate alpha for our clients. Mm-hmm. And when I when I joined, there was a lot of venture deals going on, but they brought me on as head of trading to sort of rebuild the desk, rebuild the strategies uh and redeploy capital into more actively managed into in a more actively managed way. And so that's really what's evolved here is the uh, a move towards being very, very, very active in the crypto space. And now I'd say that we're we're pretty hot money in the space. So we we move move around capital fairly frequently. Although recently, we've actually looked at doing a lot more early stage deals, specifically in areas where we feel that we have extreme competence. So in the, when DeFi started getting really big, all of the financial primitives associated with DeFi, you know, we have some pretty good uh, understanding of how those markets should work, given our you know, traditional backgrounds at the firm and, and our deep expertise in the markets themselves. So we actually took advantage of that a ton. One thing that we weren't particularly good at was underwriting protocols and, you know, figuring out, okay, what's going to be the next Ethereum? What's going to be the next Polkadot? What's I mean, going I think, I Bitcoin? think and that's, just, like, that's the, just not, not in our wheelhouse, right?
0: Well, but As I think much. part of the problem there is that there just aren't very many. So it doesn't matter what you, what you put your money in. It probably didn't do well, you know, yeah. on the <laughs> protocol level. I mean, other than to your point, Ethereum, Polkadot and Solana, I mean, there's really nothing else yeah. going on and, you know, maybe Star yeah. chain, we'll see. Um, yeah. So, so, so. When when you first started, I mean, how deep were you actually trading in terms of the number of assets? But has that changed over time as the fund has grown? I mean, obviously liquidity in this space has grown, but has the fund kind of out outpaced that? Like, can you guys trade more assets than you could before? Like what, what are you kind of looking at in terms of an investable universe?
1: It's kind of interesting from market market structure perspective, right? So Bitcoin has gone from call it six, six thousand bucks to, to fifty thousand bucks during my time here at Block Tower over the last 16 months uh, and liquidity definitely has not scaled with the amount of capital that's coming that's coming to the space Bitcoin Bitcoin liquidity has scaled and I'm not saying that liquidity hasn't scaled I'm just saying that it hasn't really scaled with AUM growth right and so if, if you're looking if you're looking at the tradable universe you would think that maybe it would keep pace as you grow because a broader market is growing but because so much of that growth is contained to a small number of assets, you don't actually get that. You don't actually get that. Boost. So, for example, 16 months ago, we probably could have traded everything in the top 300. Now we're we're much 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 more restricted than that, right? So it's it's just much much more difficult to actually swing around size that's meaningful in, in assets that are outside outside the top 100, and the returns just don't don't look as good. But you know, liquidity for the top 20 has scaled to the point where, yeah, we can't, we can't take those bets, right? Like you, you, you can't take those bets and you can take those bets pretty frequently, pretty quickly. You can get in and out. All right. But yeah, it's, it's an, it's, it's a, it's an interesting and kind of annoying point that the crypto markets are still, uh, are still fairly, fairly illiquid outside of the, outside of the main names. But the, the introduction, one thing that's been really, really, really fantastic for this is the introduction of uh, Binance futures and, and FDX futures to some, to some extent. Um, but the futures products on altcoins have provided a tremendous amount of liquidity to both the underlying and just generally trading trading that asset. It's so much so much easier to swing around size now that futures that futures exist. And I think a lot of people that's why you're seeing futures volumes really explode. Right? It's just so much easier to trade trade on these futures than it is to trade than it is to trade spot. It's a lot easier to be capital efficient when you're when you're trading futures for market makers. So just all around the introduction of futures has probably done just as much for uh, for those long tail alts as the growth of Bitcoin itself.
0: Right. And I guess it also depends on just your investment horizon, right? I mean, you mentioned that there's potentially some longer term stuff they're getting into. And so I guess you can size up over time as opposed to, you know, I mean, I don't know what your turnover is, but, you know, and you know, as opposed to more active strategies, some of these assets, I mean, we have, you know, other clients that are, you know, you know, are just like I could trade something six months ago and we're just too big. I can't touch it. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, it, it it happens, and I think I think the the key is that you kind of have to define your edge when it, when you're running these strategies, like you as an individual trader or you as a firm, you have to you have to really think hard about where your edges and, and what you should be trading and how you should be trading it. Uh, and as you grow bigger, your edge that you might have had before disappears, and so you have to be really critical with yourself and say, okay, well, 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 what can I what can I do now, right? Like with with the current toolkit and the current AUM that I have now with all the opportunities that are in front of me, what, what, what can I, what can I do? What can I do? Right. And that changes dramatically with, with size. So the things, the things that we were running six months ago, we're not necessarily running today. And our investment horizons have gone from, you know, sometimes some, some a day to uh, now we're looking, you know, much, much, much further out than that.
0: Right. Uh, we're, we're, we're,
1: not, we're not running as many uh, intraday strategies.
0: And, and what do you think of kind of the, the rise of, you know, different ways of trading? I mean, OTC was always existed in crypto, but it's become significantly bigger. I mean, you look at Genesis's volumes, mm-hmm. significantly larger, you can look at, you know, Paradigm with, you know, block trading on Deribit, you can look at, you know, some of these PB solutions, smart order routing. I mean, ha- have those helped you guys? Um, oh, yeah,
1: massively, massively, massively helped. Um, I'll say that, the options market growing to a point where it can handle size has been extremely, extremely useful for us just from a portfolio management perspective and also from allowing us to take directional bets. It's funny, one of the one of the best things that happened this year for any active, for any active trader were call sellers coming into the market and just absolutely, absolutely hammering balls across the board so that before the 20K break, you were seeing. Vols at like 60 to 70% and that was, that was kind of nuts. It was like, it was such an obvious mispricing because there was so much supply and not a lot of demand. And the thing is that, you know, if that had happened 12 months ago, the options market just like would not have been big enough for it to be interesting, but, and it wouldn't have been big enough for, you know, massive call sellers to really, to really come in and just wouldn't, they wouldn't have been able to service all the clients that wanted to want access to it. It would have been a much smaller market. And so the growth of the options market has facilitated a lot of new opportunities in this space. And it's a, it's a really, it's a really fun market to claim for sure. And so,
0: but that's primarily BTC at this point, right? I mean, you know, yeah, primarily
1: BTC, ETH, ETH has decent options, uh, has a decent options market, right. although much less liquid than BTC. Um, and then some, if you, uh, if you argue enough, you can get some contracts written on smaller assets with some counterparties,
0: right? With like OTC <laughs> desk and things like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. You just, you just have to haggle over the
0: balls a bit, right? And so, and so as head of trading, what does your day-to-day look like today?
1: Uh, so basically my day-to-day, what it looks like is screening the markets for opportunities, checking up on our, on our current portfolio to make sure that things are doing what I, what I need them to be doing, um, and constantly looking and iterating on new, on new strategies. So I'll get, I'll get in in the morning. I'll look at all of the metrics that we look at to judge, to judge the market. Uh, I'll basically download this information in my head. I'll talk to, I'll talk to our team about it. We'll come up with a coherent thesis on, you know, what, what we think the day's, the day's action will be. And all this takes place in like less than 10 minutes. It's not like a, it's not like a very, very difficult or or long process because we've been doing it so much. Then I'll go in, I'll I'll check, I'll check on the portfolio. I'll check on our trades. I'll I'll monitor them. Obviously, overnight, like we, we always, we always are monitoring positions as well, but it's just good to, you know, get, get a holistic review. In the in the morning as well. So then, once once that done, once that's done, you know, there there's so many different things that, that you can tackle in a day. Whether it's working working with our quant for, to develop new strategies in the markets that you know we thought of over the last over the last two weeks. Whether it's working with our analysts to really dig into an interesting project that we saw come out that we think is not being appreciated appreciated by the market. To screening, you know, the derivatives markets for for opportunities of mispricings, um, options market with mispricings. Yeah, there's uh it's basically you have your you have your level set where you get acquainted with everything and then you dive into the opportunities. And it's it's a pretty it gets the, the days the days are very different, is what I'll say. The day the days are extremely, extremely different because the market's always doing different things and they're always different things to look at. So one day you'll be doing you know, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be building a model on figuring out whether something is extremely undervalued compared to, compared to something else. And another day, you'll be like trolling for 4chan to figure out if there's actually legs behind a movement, <laughs>
0: right? And so, and so by undervalued, I mean, what are some of the things that you're looking for to determine that something is undervalued? I mean, what are certain metrics or, or you know, obviously without giving away everything, but just, you know, the types of broad things that you're looking for?
1: Yeah, so undervalued. Um, it, it's not just it's not just about numbers. It's also about mindshare. So one thing that one thing that I'll point out, you know, there's I, I can't mention specific assets, but there's there's a there's a current ecosystem that is uh, really 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 growing heavily in China right now that the West is completely ignoring, and there's a lot of value that's being poured in there right now, and there, there's a lot of volume that's being poured through this ecosystem, and there's just if you look at the if you look at the market caps of the assets there, and you look at the market caps of the assets on, on Ethereum, they're wildly divergent for now, and they actually have similar similar amounts of revenue, similar amounts of um, transactions per day. Uh, actually, uh, much they don't have as many users right now, um, but we think that we think that's changing pretty pretty quickly. And then you can look at that and you can say, okay, well. On the metric side, sure, it's undervalued, but also on the mindset, right, on the capital side. There's so many people that have allocated to to projects right now outside of that ecosystem that if they even get a little bit of money from those people that are writing it off right now, these things are going to reprice really hard because they have, in addition to that money that's going to flow in, they have a massive amount of money that's flowing in from, you know, China, the Eastern countries. Right. So it's like, is it it mispriced on like a dollar level, on a revenue level, on a TVL level? But it's also mispriced in the sense that are people that have a lot of money not paying attention to it? And why are they not paying attention to it? And will they start paying attention to it?
0: And so I guess, you know, I guess then, you know, to your point, I feel like with with mispricing or underpricing, I think one of the biggest challenges that we've had is like, you know, having a reference for valuation in this space. And I feel like DeFi is the first time where we have that in a way, right? I mean, the things that you're referring to, I believe are DeFi assets built on top of, you know, a polka dot or whatever. I mean, we know we don't need to go into the name, but, you know, so I mean, does, is it different for like protocols? Like how, how would you look at like, and, and say for like, like oh, my, my question actually even before that is like, do you think value should accrue to protocols? Uh, and do you think you can even, you know, benchmark a protocol against another one?
1: So actually, there are kind of there are two questions in there. And I think I'll tackle them separately. So the first is, is this I concept of relative valuation, right? Relative valuation, we have to realize is that relative valuation is a bull market trade. That's it, like it's a bull market trade. You're, you're, you're basically you're basically betting on that the broader market is going up, that the broader market's not going to collapse in on itself, that you have asset A that's valued at 3 billion, you have asset B that's valued at 500 million. And if you look at the revenues, they're roughly equal, so that makes no sense. So the five hundred million one should catch up, but that only makes sense if the broader market's going up. If the broader market is going down and Bitcoin's like crashing twenty percent a day, or you're in twenty seventeen, that trade makes zero sense. So like you should you should be you should be tackling that trade. So all of these things, in my in my perspective, it's not like fundamental analysis in um in like the in the sense of. Oh, I'm, I'm valuing equities and I think that this is, this is mispriced and I think it's going to revert, revert to that price at some point, right? It's, you, you, you're looking at relative valuations of two assets that, that are going up and you're basically betting on one to catch up based on, based, based on these metrics. And what you have to realize also is that you can't, you also can't say, Oh, well, price to sales of this thing is five to one. Therefore it should be valued here and therefore it's fair value. Because again, all of the usage, all of the revenue, everything that's being generated on that platform right now is massive speculation because we're in a bull market and it's completely dependent on what the market is doing. If, if assets were falling 20% a day, nobody would be trading on Uniswap. Nobody would be trading on SushiSwap. It would be much, the volumes would drop off a cliff and your price to sales would you know move, right? Because they, they just wouldn't be generating anything. So all of this is, all of this is very much so a, a bull market trade and valuations. Right now, in my mind, are really only useful for finding catch-up trades, um, and then also finding like rough heuristics, right? So let's uh, let's say that over if you're investing over like a five-year or ten-year time horizon, or even like call a three-year time horizon, then I think you can apply valuations to these things because you're basically betting that you know crypto's not going to be in a bull market bull market forever, but you can get caught really badly if you're just if you're just sitting there and you're saying. Well, the price to sales are really, really low right now. So this means it has to go up another 10x in order to in order to get there, right? Because if it doesn't go up another 10x and it drops half, I think almost definitionally the price to sales will either stay the same or get worse because volumes are going to drop off, right? Um, and the same goes with lending protocols, and the same goes with any of these other any of these other protocols. So it's it's a bull it's a bull market trade to get back to to get back to the original point. Um, would like definitely caution against thinking that it's anything other than that. Uh, on the protocol level side, that's kind of, that's a, that's a pretty deep conversation. I'm fairly convinced and I'm willing to be challenged that protocols are unlikely to accrue value meaningfully unless they accrue monetary value. And the reason is because it's a race to zero on fees and it's a race to zero on transaction throughput. So if you have something like Ethereum versus a Solana versus a DOT versus a Near versus a whatever, if each protocol that comes out just undercuts the other one on fees and on throughput, then the val- the theoretical value of that thing is gonna is gonna fall unless it scales the through unless it scales the transaction amounts with the reduction in fees. And if you have a protocol that comes out and say, "Oh, I'm going to reduce fees by a millionth of Ethereum," are they going to have a million times more transactions go through? It's just hard for me to see. Uh, Hard for me to see that, right? Um, and right now, these things, e- even even if the transaction fees are generated, they don't actually accrue direct value to the protocol itself without some sort of burn mechanism. And so, even then, you, you 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 look at you look at this revenue. Like sometimes people will say, "Well, look at how many fees Ethereum generates." And it's like, "Well, it's just recycled capital. There's no there's no value accrual there. The only value accrual is that people buy Ethereum and use it to interact with these protocols, and therefore they associate Ethereum with some sort of currency or some sort of value in their minds." It's the exact same reason that Bitcoin has value. People just assume that it's value. There's not like f- like huge fundamental reason for Ethereum value to be valued at 200 billion today, because you don't need a 200 billion dollar asset to pay for gas to deposit on up, Right. That 200 billion comes directly from the monetary department.
0: right. And no, so, I mean,
1: yeah, that, no, that, that 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 that's kind of where I stand on it.
0: No, I mean, I, I think that makes sense. I mean, my my perspective is very similar, except I would right. add that I think. Ethereum ha- I mean you've said it I mean Ethereum has value because people think it has value right I mean you know I've heard a lot of you know people say oh I want to buy Ethereum because I don't know how to interact with DeFi and Ethereum's like an ETF into DeFi and whether or not that's the case is is up for discussion right I mean it doesn't actually does it give you exposure to any of these things no not really I mean you know obviously it gives you exposure to some transactional fees but I think it's the kind of thing that if enough people believe in it right then it's 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 self-fulfilling prophecy
1: yeah, I think I'm kind of beating a dead horse by saying that I like the application layer more than the protocol layer. I think yeah. that's pretty. That, that's just like a pretty common common take. But I think it's a common take for a reason. And I think it's the the contrarian take is maybe just to be contrarian and not necessarily based in a huge amount of a uh, huge amount of underlying underlying fact. So actually, um, the fat the fat protocol thesis. Uh, was the first that I wrote like a, a snippet on this in in 2018, basically outlining why I didn't believe in the fat protocol thesis. And my my viewpoint on that has actually stayed the same. If you Google "fat protocol thesis," I think it's still like the second thing that pops up. It's like why well, the fat protocol thesis doesn't make sense. Um, but I'm I'm still pretty steadfast in that. Uh, in that you want to be investing in the application layer, and if you want to get access to DeFi, basically what you do is you try to buy an index of it. Um, and right now it's actually pretty difficult to do that in a meaningful way, right? It's pretty difficult to buy a DeFi index, manage that DeFi index, uh, because things change so quickly. Things change so quickly for all we know. I mean, okay. So actually, uh, Seth Gins of, uh, of CoinFund posed this, yeah, posed this question to me. And I thought it was pretty thought provoking. It's like, okay, at the end of, tw- at the end of 2019, what DeFi assets would you have been the most bullish on? Like what, what DeFi assets would you have been most bullish on? I sat there. I said, maybe SNX? I don't know. Like I, well, Maker? I, you know, I, I, yeah, exactly. And then, and then Maker, right? Like you would have been most bullish on Maker. And Maker dramatically underperformed all of these other DeFi assets, right? Uh, and as a, as a source of leverage, it now loses out, you know, to, uh, to compound and Aave in terms of functionality, at least. So what, you, what are you really betting on when you're betting on DeFi right now? You're, you're really betting on these top assets. If you're constructing it as these top assets being the winners. And that's a really dangerous bet because I think that we're super, super, super early in the ecosystem right now. There's a ton of innovation yet to happen. All the models are still, are still being worked out. Realistically, the amount of capital in DeFi is tiny. I think it could easily 50 X over the next three years. The, the amount of capital that's locked up in DeFi. And so all it takes is one new protocol that has a better model that partners with one bank, a small bank, and it'll be the number one DeFi protocol, right? Um, in, in terms of TVL. I know that sounds like very far off, but I think that's reasonable to happen in the next two to three years. A lot happens in here in this space. Uh, people have gotten ex- in early 2020. Nobody took Bitcoin seriously as an inflation asset. Even people, even people in crypto said Bitcoin's not a macro asset. Don't be ridiculous. And now everybody thinks it's a macro asset. Everybody in the world agrees that it's a macro asset currently. Basic people might disagree that, you know, it's useful. People might disagree that it's going to go anywhere, but everybody agrees that it currently reacts to events in the macro space, right? Like an event, it, it reacts to things that that occur. Um, I think that same sort of, it's not the exact same sort of thing, but that, lot, that shift in thinking is very possible. Uh, in the, in the DeFi space, in the DeFi space as well from, oh yeah, these, you know, the, these, these DeFi assets are, are ridiculous. I'm not going to touch them in two years. Maybe a bank is using one of them and maybe a king makes, right? So it's, I think it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to invest directly in DeFi. You kind of need an active manager to do it. You can't, I don't think you can invest in it passively. I think Ethereum will definitely get a tailwind from it, but you're going to underperform holding even like mid, mid tier DeFi assets.
0: And so, how do you how do you guys manage your risk in DeFi? Uh, like, are you guys you know? I mean, I don't know if you're comfortable saying this, but like, are you guys yield farming? And if so, you know, how are you guys managing your risk? How are you thinking of managing your risk? Um, you know, are you just allocating to a number of different assets? Like, you know, how do you guys even start to answer that question?
1: Yeah. So the way that the way the way that we think about it, and I can't really get
0: too deeply into
1: it, but there are there are there are a couple of ways that you can think about allocating to the DeFi to the DeFi space in general. There's allocating to allocating to fairly established protocols like Uniswap, uh, allocating to fairly established protocols like like compound, just trying to capture some general, some general beta. Um, and then it's it's very similar to just you know, underwriting any other asset, you just you look at the volatility, you look at the potential you know adverse adverse outcomes, you look at the potential events that could be that, that could be positive or negative catalysts. Um, and those, I weight smart contract risk fairly low in that they're 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 battle tested, but it's not it's never zero, but it's it's fairly low compared to the compared to the rest of DeFi. And then when you look kind of down the risk curve you really have to start taking that smart contract risk extremely seriously and as a a professional investor in the space you should have a fairly good understanding of the smart contracts the structure the code that's being written the quality of the code you should have at least somebody that is competent review the code for you and not just rely on the team um, not rely on auditors if the, if they're not, you know, hugely respected in, in the space, do your, do your own diligence there. Uh, because the rest of DeFi right now is hugely experimental. It's growing extremely quickly. And what happens when a space grows extremely quickly that is hackable? It's going to attract the best talent in the space. It's going to att- attract the best hackers anyway. Why are, why are hackers spending their time doing anything else other than trying to attack DeFi if there's 200 billion locked up at some point? right? Why would they do anything else other than try to attack DeFi? That's where all the money is. So you're going to get the best and the brightest black hats in the world attacking this stuff at some point. And so you need to be, you know, fairly confident uh, that if you're going to hold something for a long, for a long-term horizon, that it's not just a flash in the pan project that has put in a lot of thought into their model and not a lot of thought into their, into their programming. You have to be really, really comfortable on the programming side of things. Um, so that's that that's that's actually a, a major risk. Uh, in general, it's kind of hard. And I'll turn this into a monologue about risk in crypto in general. It's really hard to think about risk in crypto. Like it's very hard to think about your value at risk. It's very hard to think about you know your correlations because all of these things change day in and day out, right? So your your ETH beta to Bitcoin will go from like one to two to negative one over the course of over the course of six months. Sometimes, sometimes in Bitcoin is ripping, Ethereum will be down. Sometimes in Bitcoin is ripping, Ethereum will outperform. Sometimes in Bitcoin is down, Ethereum will be up. And so if you look at your portfolio in context, you kind of have to make almost a subjective call on the regime that you're in. And then you can start to think about risk, but it's not an exact science. It's not like a model that you can just build and it'll spit out, you know, all of your correlations, uh, that you can, all of your betas, all, all of your, you know, the, the vol of your the expected vol of your portfolio like that that just doesn't that just doesn't work because it, change, it like the, the market is so fragile and changes so frequently that a lot of it is subjective which is why I think that there's still a huge amount of alpha in discretionary trading and there's a huge amount of alpha in basically sentiment trading because of this dynamic where you can't quantify everything right now in, in these markets. And I think that it's probably gonna last that way for a while. And you're actually seeing it bleed into the financial markets. You're not seeing what you're not seeing is you're not seeing crypto get more rational. You're seeing the financial markets, the stock market get more irrational, right? And so it's actually going the opposite way. I think a lot of it is due to this, this massive amount of money that's in, that's in the system right now, right? And it's just flooding. That's just flooding coffers and people are willing, willing to punt, right? And fundamentals are getting completely divorced from price action. And I think we all see that. I think it's fairly obvious. I'm not commenting on how long that's going to last, but it is happening in both the crypto markets and in the and in the traditional markets currently.
0: I think that bleeds well into my next question, which are: What are your thoughts on you know recent market movement? And you know, you know, does it make sense why certain assets are outperforming other assets? And what do you think of like coins like Cardano? that you know we're seemingly you know dead coins from 2017 you know reaching the top 4 by market cap i mean that's just one example obviously and no offense to cardano i don't really know anything about it but like you know like there's just there's so many of these 2017 coins that are just making this giant resurgence and no one uses them
1: yeah it's a, it's a matter it's a matter of audience um, so there, i think there are two things that are going on here and that's actually a bet that i think you could have made if you had, if you had thought uh, about how the market was going to was going to play out People invest in things that they feel comfortable with. People invest in things that they know. And when they are investing, especially in a market where they feel like they don't have the best grasp on all the new things that are coming out, they're going to fall back on comfort. And the yeah, so the, the wave of money that has come into the crypto space right now, I think is primarily made up of institutions, primarily made up of high net worth individuals, but also primarily made up of retail from 2017. So all of the new money that's flowing into the space from retail, not all of it, but a substantial portion of it up until this point, maybe a few weeks ago, it wasn't new retail, it wasn't people newly discovering crypto. It was people that were tangentially affiliated with crypto in 2017, got out, now they're coming back, right? Just anecdotally, I've had a resurgence of a ton of people that were active in 2017, get active again, joining Telegram, DMing me, asking me questions. And so I think you saw outperformance from some of these from some of these fossil coins purely because of that. And that's also why you're seeing, you know, bids and things like XRP, which the broader crypto community uh, doesn't really touch right now because they're worried about it being a security. But somebody, you know, that actually that still has a finance account from 2017 that just logged back in. They're like, oh, I remember XRP. I remember Cardano. I'm just going to buy this thing. I also think, you know, we're, we're both we're both based in the in the Western world. There's a lot that we don't see in, in other crypto communities. You know, Japan has a has a big prices presence in Cardano. They they trade a lot of volume there. Uh, China also has a lot of a lot of volume that they trade in, in Cardano. And so we just maybe don't see that. And so maybe they're they're excited for reasons that we just don't really we just don't really know. But again, that's that's kind of that's kind of my job, right? As a head of trading here, as the guy that's trying to look look for opportunities, my job is to find the things that you know people people in our circles aren't really talking about that people in other circles that people in other circles are, and that. Th- those things that are being talked about. Making a bet on whether they'll be talked about more or be talked about less, because that, that's that's kind of that's kind of the core of the of the crypto markets, right? It's it's very it's very much so a sentiment a sentiment game. It's very much so what's 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 the hot coin of the week uh, in an actively traded sense. And then the really big home runs come from building conviction in something, accumulating while it's low cap, knowing that the rest of the market doesn't see it yet, and then holding that for six months to a year, or holding it for two years. Uh, basically, knowing that it's going to be re-rated o- over that period of time, which is kind of the bet that we're making, we're, we're, make, we're making on DeFi uh, in our less in our less active mode.
0: Yeah, it's kind of funny how quickly something in crypto can turn from a heavy bag to a hundred x. Like, you know, you could have something sitting on your book for nine months that's just a bag and looks terrible, and I'm sure your LPs are like, "What the hell is this?" And then, uh, and then, you know, two months later, you're like. I told you guys like, uh, but I'm sure a lot of them were also shit heavy bags too, right? I mean, you, you got to have a combination to, to get those giant winners.
1: It's funny. One of my, uh, one of my buddies, this isn't directly my friend, but one of my buddies has a friend that's super, super, super deep in OMG and he's been holding OMG for,
0: oh, and, and moon since like mid, since basically since it
1: came out like mid 2017, right? And He's just been baggled this entire time, wrote it the entire way down. And I remember when it got listed on, uh, on Coinbase, it had that like crazy run from a dollar to eight dollars. And he was like, finally, I told you guys, I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> you guys didn't believe me,
0: Every, that for four years. <laughs> everyone's a genius in a bull market.
1: I was like, oh my God, that's, that's so funny. I I I mean, yeah. Like, look, I I think that crypto just has these massive beta tailwinds to the point where, if you hold something that isn't utter crap and isn't a complete scam for long enough, even if you buy the top, you might you might end up in the money if you wait a little bit. Um, Although it's kind of kind of kind of an interesting point, I'll say that I on Bitcoin when I first got into Bitcoin, I was extremely 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 confident. That it would be priced higher than it was where I got in. And I always thought that, you know, 2 trillion to 4 trillion was kind of fair value for this thing, at least from my perspective back then. And now we're almost there, right? We're almost at a trillion dollars market cap. And I'm sitting here as a crypto native and I'm talking to all, all of my other friends uh, who, are, who are in the space as well. And we're discussing and I'm talking to other fund managers in the space and we're discussing and we're thinking, yeah, like, is 200k fair value? Like, is this, is this kind of the end of the cycles, right? So Bitcoin goes through, has gone through these, uh, cycles over the last, over the last decade. Is this kind of the end? Does it become a more stable asset after this point? And then out of nowhere, in like the last three months, you have Guggenheim come in and be like, nah, it's going to 400k. It's going to 600k. Like
0: it, all these like
1: crazy targets from, from institutions that are just blowing all these, uh, all these targets. targets I, do,
0: I do wonder though, yeah. I mean, a lot of these guys just throw out price targets to get attention, right? Like,
1: definitely, you know, definitely.
0: How much of it is actually, you know, actually conviction that this thing's going up to 600k versus, hey, let's, you know, generate a bunch of buzz for Guggenheim and bring in some new, you know, capital.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's that. It's that, definitely, definitely, definitely a little bit of both. Uh, but that point of the cycles being over, or this being the end of history, I think is important for everybody in the space to chew on. And to really think about, because we're getting to the point where adoption is happening, institutions are here. At some point, there's not going to be a marginal buyer, and there's probably not going to be a huge amount of marginal sellers either. The same way that the S and P realizes pretty low vol, Bitcoin's heading that way. And so, if you're buying Bitcoin now, I think you kind of have to think to yourself, like, where where are we? Where are we in that cycle? And my answer to that is probably closer to the end than most people would like to think.
0: No, I'm with you. I'm in the same boat. I mean, this market moved way too fast. I mean, in my perspective at least it's, you know, it's it's kind of wild. But in my my next question is like, you know, in my head I separate out Bitcoin from crypto. To me they've become separate things. I don't know if you think of the market in a similar in a similar way, but you know, as we kind of think through this, I mean, what sectors of crypto do you think are like I don't want to say over undervalued because I think valuation in this space, and I think you agree is kind of stupid. It's hard. It's very hard to think about valuation. In this. Space. Yeah. But like, where do, you, where, where do you think people should be paying more attention that they're not? Where do people paying too much attention right now? Um, you know, what's your kind of overall take on that? I mean, everything's about DeFi right now, but is there like, what about NFTs? Like utility tokens were a thing. I mean, I think they're Chuck E. Cheese tokens, but they were a thing in, you know, 2017. I mean, how do you think through, you know, these different, you know, sectors of the market?
1: Yeah, uh, it's 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 a diff, it's kind of kind of a difficult question because realistically, like, there's a lot going on, but there's also not that much going on. So I, I I agree with you in that Bitcoin to me is completely separate from the rest of the crypto market right now. It is the asset that has accrued a monetary premium. It is the asset that has accrued the status of store value. And basically in twenty in 2017 and before that, every crypto that came out was very much so in that mold of trying to compete as a currency. I think Bitcoin's won. I don't think you're gonna have a competing currency I, it's, it's very it's very difficult for me to see that the only way that I see it is through these platforms things like ethereum things like dot things like Solana things like cosmos that maybe through usage of applications on their platform accrue monetary premium but as a, a pure currency plays like assets that are purely currency plays I feel are it's, it's gonna be very difficult for them to catch up to Bitcoin at this point so move it moving into the platforms. I think that right now you're seeing a pretty massive explosion in DeFi. That's apparent. That's apparent to everybody. Everybody's eyes eyes are on DeFi. Everybody's eyes are actually on NFTs now too, right? A lot of people are paying attention to what's going on in the NFT market. The NFT market is actually getting more adoption from their equivalent of the traditional world than the DeFi market is right now. The DeFi market is very solely crypto. The NFT market, tons of traditional artists are getting into that space like now because it's such an obvious value add and it's
0: just- Gary V was doing a
1: podcast yeah. on Top Shot yesterday. It's like so, yeah, it's like so clearly there. And what's interesting to me is I would say that the things that are being paid attention to right now are the things that everybody should be paying attention to, NFTs and DeFi. I think that the DeFi crowd needs to pay more attention to NFTs and the NFT crowd needs to pay more attention to DeFi, um, but that's a little, 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 bit, little bit of a cop-out answer. I'm I'm lukewarm right now on the concept of of Web three. I think that there's some interesting projects that are that are being built in that space. Uh, one particularly is Handshake. Uh, I think that the the restructuring of the internet with tokens for economic incentivization is interesting, but it's not like there hasn't been a provable model built out yet. So all of this all of this concept of uh, of Web three. You know, take, taking over, building, building, building on top of of Web two is just way less compelling to me than the concept of Finance two with DeFi, where it's very, very clear who the who, who the end user might be. It's very, very clear how these product how these products are being built, how how they're gonna how they're actually gonna incentivize people to start using using their platforms. Whereas, I'm not really sure if a decentralized social media is gonna is gonna accrue critical mass versus somebody like a Twitter decentralizing itself, or, you know, uh, building out products that are decentralized. Um, I just don't, I just don't really have a coherent thesis on that. But I'm also not really the kind of the kind of guy to talk
0: to about that. uh, My perspective perspective too, is, you know, I think define hmm. NFTs work because people love gambling. Like people love speculating and DeFi's and NFTs in particular are just yeah. speculation at this point. Yeah. It's
1: a, cra- it's a crazy bubble right now. Like crazy yeah. bubble right now. So I bought a top shot. like I don't know, three <laughs> months ago for 20 bucks. And I looked at the cards today and two of them were selling for over a thousand dollars. And I was like, this, this is nuts.
0: I turned I turned uh, $70 in top shot in one weekend, two weekends ago into three grand. And I was like, I'm out, I'm done. Like I'll take my three grand and I'm out. It's ridiculous. I mean, it
1: was just like kind of like a complete afterthought. But that ROI, I mean, like obviously the notional amounts are not massive, but that ROI is just ridiculous right now, that NFT, NFT space. Uh, I wrote a little bit of a tweet thread about this yesterday. I think that we're getting close to the blow off phase for NFTs short term. Um, but I think long term, they're going to be they're going to be pretty massive. And my thinking on the NFT space is that it's likely to be the NFTs themselves that accrue value, not necessarily the platforms. I don't know if they're going to be that many transactions that happen to make them comparable to trading platforms or exchanges. And so a lot of the value is going to accrue to the artists. A lot of the value is going to accrue to the the actual assets themselves. And the vast majority of people have no clue, literally zero clue how to value NFTs, including myself. I mean, look, if you look at famous artists, sometimes the most famous artists in the world, like Picasso, he painted so much. There are only a few years and a few paintings that accrue massive value. He's actually, there are a ton of paintings that, you know, you could afford with your top shot 3k that Picasso would have painted um, at least, you know, a couple of years ago. And that's because not every create, not every creation of his is massively, massively, massively valuable, only a few are. And so I think the same thing is going to happen in that NFT space. It's not going to be like every single... Uh, uh crypto punk is going to be valued massively high I mean, like it's the fact that
0: artificial scarcity right i mean with like top yeah. shot there was just no supply everyone came in so yeah. all this garbage is accrued a tremendous amount of value cuz there's no supply
1: yeah but it's 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 just so cool what's happening right now in that you're seeing you're seeing all of these people look at nfts and say oh man there is something here so despite the fact that i think that we're pretty close to a blow off phase for nfts i think that any dip in like NFT picks and shovels, I think that's that's an interesting interesting place to place capital. And I also think that spending your time understanding the NFT spaces will, will, will pay off will pay off well in the long run because it's real, right? Like this is this is extremely extremely real right now, and people people should uh, people should respect it respect it as such. I think Bitcoin introduced the idea of digital of digital scarcity in a real in a, in a really robust way, and now people I think. A lot of people are comfortable with that idea. And so they're willing to pay. They're willing to pay out the notes for things that are digitally scarce. Right. They're, they're, will, they're willing to do it.
0: They're also so, gambling. But yeah. 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 No, I mean, I mean, I- look, everybody in
1: crypto has made a lot of money recently. They're willing to throw at things. But even people outside of crypto are paying for this paying for this stuff right now.
0: I mean, I've gotten I've gotten probably, I don't know, 50 emails about are we aping into, I think, Mortal Kombat cards or something or something is coming out today. I'll tell you what it is. Hold on. I'm going to pull this up here. Oh, my God. Uh, Street Fighter. Street Fighter cards are coming out. And everybody's like, oh, I'm going to ape 10K into these things because everybody's got so much money and has no clue what to do with it.
1: Yeah, I guess we're buying Street Fighter cards now. <laughs>
0: it's coming ridiculous. out in a few hours. So uh, if you're ready to get in, throw some of Ari's money in there. Um
1: uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how that went. Out, but. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a there's a DAO that just came out called Pepe DAO that's issuing Pepe NFTs. Oh, that's gonna and I, DAO for I joined like two I joined weeks. the Discord. I joined the Discord last night, and it's just absolute chaos. It's the funniest. <laughs> it's the funniest thing. Just like you're just a Pepe flying around everywhere. People oh, are that's like, awesome. when's a drop. when's it drop. when's it drop. <laughs> yeah, it feels it feels very much so like the uh, the food phase of Defi Mania of August. Where people were like in the Discord of kimchi, and they were like freaking out because they're getting a million percent yield. <laughs> it it, it feels. Remember, j, remember the, hot the, dog. The, the similarities I, I think are striking, and I actually think this is probably a useful point for anybody that that wants that wants to trade. Um, keep an emotional journal of like how you feel about the markets and how you think the market is feeling, and you're going to start to notice that cycles repeat consistently. The way that you feel repeats consistently. And often it's counter trading those emotions that are, that's the most profitable way to, to play this crypto market. It's when you're texting everybody about your PNL, you should probably start taking profit, you know, or when people are texting you about their PNL or, or however, however, you know, that, that goes down. It's, it's, when uh, when your
0: grandpa reads in the Wall Street high. Journal, that, that Bitcoin is at a, at a new all-time high and gives you a call. That's when uh, it's time to take some chips off the table.
1: Yeah. And, People say it, but I actually think there's a very concrete answer, which is keep an emotional journal of you and the markets, talk about prices and write down what you think is going to happen. And then after six months of that, you're going to look back and that's going to be your most valuable resource trade. I guarantee it. It's actually uh, something that I would suggest.
0: And so right now we're, you know, I think we we can agree we're in an alt season. I mean, I know Bitcoin's movement the last couple of days has outperformed alts, but for the most part we're definitely in an alt season. And so, you know, my thoughts are, you know, or my my question is, how long do you think this, you know, quote-unquote alt season will last for, you know, and 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 do you think alts will continue to outperform Bitcoin for some period of time? I
1: think we're we're likely at the point in the cycle where if you hold an alt, it'll be beating Bitcoin at some point in the next 3 months to 6 months depending on whether the cycle is actually over or not, or whether Bitcoin's topped. But I, I think that we're, we're at the point of the cycle where everybody's so flush with cash that it's actually very, very, very easy for altcoins as a whole to outperform considering how small they are compared to compared to Bitcoin. And I'm kind of keeping Ethereum outside of this uh, in, in a sense, although I think that Ethereum is also likely to outperform. but. Basically anything in the in outside the, the the top two because of the amount of capital that's in the system, I think it's, they're likely to outperform. They're going to be periods where Bitcoin is going to rip really hard, and altcoins are going to out, uh, underperform on that move. They're going to be down fifteen percent. They're going to be down twenty percent. They might be over allocated for the time being. Maybe they're down fifty percent, but they're probably going to serve. I don't think we've topped in terms of altcoins for this cycle. I think that we're gonna we're gonna see new highs, and I think that this is going to get pretty crazy, because we're not seeing the mass market retail yet. And I think we will. So the one question that you kind of have to ask yourself is, how long is this rotation going to be? How long is this alt season going to be? um, If you're trading, if you're trading actively, like if you're if you're taking positions for one to two week horizons, you really have to think heavily as to what is Bitcoin going to do in the next one to two weeks, if you're buying an alt and you worry that Bitcoin's going to out, going to outperform it and that your alt is going to underperform for like three to six months. I would say that's much less of a worry in my opinion. But if you're like actively trading around positions, you, you, you have to, you have to keep that in mind. And also, you know, if you're, you know, punting things intraday, you should be wary of punting alts intraday when Bitcoin is in an extremely high, vol, like high ball period. The other thing that I'll point out is that, uh, the relationship between DeFi assets and Ethereum is almost as clear as a relationship between BTC and alts, where when Ethereum realizes extremely high vol, DeFi tends not to do extremely well. When Ethereum realizes low vol, after a period of appreciation, DeFi tends to do extremely well. So that relationship holds true with Bitcoin and other, with more general alts, it holds true with Ethereum and DeFi. And I think that if you, if you're looking, if you're looking at this from, from more holistic perspective, the best performer of the next Three to six months, in my opinion, is likely to be quality assets. Like I, I, I don't really subscribe to the thesis of junk of junk outperforming. I think that there might be a period where junk rallies and quality doesn't. But if you're holding an asset, if you're constructing a portfolio for the next three to six months, uh, I think that you're going to be want to you're you're gonna you're gonna be want to be holding really really quality assets in your portfolio, kind of unlike 2017 where. You wanted to be holding the assets with the highest potential and not necessarily the best plan.
0: 2017, all you really? wanted was the lowest market cap asset because everything went up.
1: Yeah. And also, you you want, but you wanted to be holding the thing that had like a massive potential. You didn't really care how, like, okay, what is the feasibility of this thing? Like, when is it actually going to come out? What's it actually doing? What is a product any good? Does it have any market fit? No, no, no. What is the vision? What's the vision? And if the vision was big enough, that's all that matters. We're right? gonna power. Like bi-
0: we're gonna revolutionize marketing, the right? marketing division. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> revolutionizing. Remember Einsteinium? I still have friends with Einsteinium bags. All sorts of complete. Nonsense. Still,
1: you haven't convinced them out
0: of it. Um. I, I, I don't. I don't give investment advice. But when he told me he, had, he was sitting on Einsteinium bags, I'm like, I feel like you could rotate that into like literally anything else. That's um, funny. But That's uh, funny. you know, people are people are still sitting on bags. Like I have friends that like logged into like their Binance accounts or like their Polo accounts or whatever else, and like. If somebody's logging into their Polo accounts now, they really haven't traded in a long time because no one trades on Poloniex anymore. Yeah, um, that's true. And- uh, It's a real,
1: real shame, I told you, that's where I cut my teeth. Trade, trade Margin trading on Poloniex.
0: Yeah, I mean, the unfortunately oh, the, the, circle, the circle acquisition was the start of the end. Uh, yeah,
1: it was, it was. That, that was a, the, the summer of 2017 was me consistently going long ETH BTC and consistently getting my face ripped off. It was a good learning experience.
0: And so, you know, uh, you know, in terms of your personal account, because I know you can't speak too much to the fund. Is there anything that you're aping into, or if you were to be aping into things, you know, you know, what kind of things would you want to look at?
1: Yeah. So I trade exclusively in the fund, but if I were to be, if I were to be aping into things, um, I said this- you had this, like
0: a hundred grand and you could just do whatever the hell you wanted with it. You weren't concerned about risk. Where are you going?
1: So I said this uh, actually. The last podcast I did. It's actually the first podcast I did uh, with Luke Martin. I mentioned this, this was early January. I mentioned that Uniswap gems, I think, are likely to have a massive re-rating. So low-cap DeFi is likely to perform extremely well over the next, call it, two to three months, because I think Ethereum does extremely well, and Ethereum is going to enrich its holders, and there's going to be a massive wealth effect that's going to flow to all of these low-cap Uniswap gems. That kind of already happened there's been a lot of price appreciation. I mean, a lot of unit, like low cap, like 10 to 30 million assets are now trading at 150 to you know 200 million. It's there's, there's been, there's been a massive appreciation, but there's a new wave there. There's actually, there are actually new assets that are coming out fairly regularly that I think are that I think are underappreciated that have solid, that have solid teams that are built, are building inter- interesting product. And I'm a big subscriber to the theory that there isn't, there isn't a winner. So I think you have to do good diligence. You have to look at inflation numbers to make sure they're not inflating you away. You have to look at the similarity of their smart contracts to other people's smart contracts. If they just forked it, then maybe you're less inclined to, to invest. There are a bunch of ways to diligence these projects, but there are ways to diligence them. Unlike 2017, where there was basically no, no like real way to diligence it. Uh, people that have, people that have built products, people that have accrued a really strong Initial community. I think that there's still a ton of assets out there right now that aren't listed anywhere with Uniswap or SushiSwap that are going to get re-rated over the next two to three months. And you kind of just have to find them uh, and do and do the diligence
0: to, to get to get them. How, how, and does, additionally, how does somebody listening even start? Like how do you find these random assets?
1: Um it's it's funny. What we uh one one one, one thing, one thing that we do is we look at CoinGecko
0: listings. Okay. Right.
1: So you can you, you can take you can take a look you can take a look at new assets that are getting that are getting added to CoinGecko like in real time do do your diligence on them it's a pretty pretty time intensive uh, but uh, another another way to do it is just just talk to people right so a lot of people have very very different interests in the space very very different expertise uh, expertise in the space and so if you just you know you have you have context in the space ask them what 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 have you looked at recently that you that you find interesting. What should, what, should, what should I be looking at? Start, start building your network start talking to people start really start really diving into these things. Uh, and then what you could do is if you if you narrow down an ecosystem that you want to bet on, let's say that you think Avalanche is undervalued or let's say that you think that you think you know VSC is undervalued go into, go into telegram groups uh, get, try to try to get in contact with the, with, with the team if, if, if you can or, or like you know somebody that's involved in the avalanche project. what are they excited about? what are they looking at? what are the insiders what are the insiders doing? Right? What, what are the people that have decided to dedicate all their time to one specific ecosystem? What are you know? Where are they putting their money? Um, so all, all this all this kind of stuff, I think, is is extremely useful. We're at the stage in the cycle where connections are going to be extremely valuable, and talking to people is going to be extremely valuable. And the one reason for that is because you need information to be synthesized. There's way too much information out there for one person to take in. To synthesize and to come to conclusions themselves. There's just too many things to look at. So you need to find your trusted people that have their own expertise in their own sectors. And you basically have to work with them and offer them something in return. Right. Like if, if you, if you're not going to be a specialist, then you have to be a generalist that offers a specialist's information about other things. Right. So it's, uh, I think, I think that's actually key in order to, in order to doing well in the space right now.
0: And so, what are some of the biggest challenges that uh, Block Tower, as a, a fund, faces, or just maybe hedge funds in crypto in general? Uh, and you know, what are the biggest kind of competitive threats and opportunities?
1: I think crypto, crypto as a whole, and investment firms as a whole face this uh, face this existential existential dilemma of if you pitched yourself as a as a long biased fund and you're denominated in Bitcoin. Well, what happens when Bitcoin hits a million bucks? Like, what, like, what happens if there's not that much upside left uh, in Bitcoin? And I think the answer is really nice, and it's kind of been presented to us, which is that there is a lot of activity now in the rest of the crypto world. There's a lot of activity now in in, in the in the rest of the crypto world, and we basically get to front run all the institutions into the rest of that activity because all these all these hedge funds they're not, not going to be trading Bitcoin. They're not they're not going to be involved in. In uh, you know trading on the CME futures, they're they're probably they're probably going to get on these offshore exchanges at some point. Um, they're out, they're going to allocate to Bitcoin, but it's going to take a while for them to get comfortable with the rest of the market. And so the biggest challenge I think is anybody that's market making in Bitcoin right now, anybody that's you know providing services in Bitcoin specifically or is entirely focused on Bitcoin, you're kind of reaching the edge of your juice. Either you've established yourself like Coinbase or you've established yourself, um, you know, like, like a grayscale, or you're kind of fighting an uphill battle. And then everybody else, I think, is going to experience an extremely hard pivot to the rest of the crypto ecosystem, which is great, because, you know, that's always been in in our mandate.
0: And so, you know, what are your thoughts? I know you've written quite, quite a lot about this on, you know, buying activity and price movement during Asian hours. And, you know, has that changed over time?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's a, ch- ch- it's, ch- it's changed for the better. I see that. It's changed for the better. They've stopped, uh, they've stopped dumping on us. <laughs> it's really, it's really nice. It's really, really, really nice to see. I think just for the longest, for the longest time, I mean, if you run, if you ran the strategy, uh, you did extremely well. It's working less well right now. Uh, just, I think that everybody kind of knows about it. So everybody's trying to run the strategy at this point. Um, by the time I was tweeting about it, the alpha had already decayed a bit, so I don't feel too mad about that. Uh, yeah, I think there's just a ton of supply in China. There's a ton of supply, just massive amount of selling that comes out comes out of that area of the world. And the they, supply
0: is from what? they sold I mean?
1: they sold a lot to Elon. They sold a lot of Bitcoin to Elon. They sold a lot of Bitcoin to large Western macro buyers in the low <laughs> low thirties and. Any, every dip below 30 was basically bought up by all of these, all of these big whales and all of the sellers were basically miners at that point. Right. And I think we've cleared a lot of that supply. And so that dynamic has shifted to the point where Asia is fairly, I won't, I won't call them bullish, but they're not as bearish anymore. And so I think what you're going to see is over the next call at six months, the Eastern market is really going to come in and start buying crypto very 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 aggressively. I think that's likely to happen over the over the next 6 months, and so positioning for that is probably important.
0: And so, I mean, you know, miners obviously aren't generating that much new BTC now. Do you think these are like miners that just, you know, accrued BTC over 2019-2020 that just were dumping yet? It?
1: Yeah, it, it's inventory, but I think you also have to realize that, you know, nine, 900 BTC a day is actually a substantial amount of money at this point right? It's a, it's, it's a decent, it's a decent amount. I mean, it's not- I know.
0: I mean, I remember during, you know, during the ha- the halving, it was like nothing. It was like not a, it was what, $7, 8000000 million. It wasn't a significant amount of money, but I guess mm-hmm. now it's, you know.
1: Yeah. And these million. things, these things scale, right? And they don't scale, they don't scale linearly, right? So if you have, if you have Bitcoin at 50,000, it just takes a lot more capital to move it higher, which means you need an entirely new participant to buy, Whereas Bitcoin at 6K, it doesn't need that much capital to send it higher. And there are a, a ton of people. There are a lot of people that can buy $8 million of Bitcoin a day, you know, like in aggregate, like retail can buy $8 million, $8 million of Bitcoin a day fairly easily. Uh, buying $100 million of Bitcoin a day, buying $50 million of Bitcoin a day, where we are now. Um. It's just you need you need new uh, you need a much deeper broader set of participants which obviously we have in the market otherwise we wouldn't we wouldn't be going up but it is something to keep in mind that it's 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 still like a sizable amount of money right um, to, to be absorbed by the market and if you don't get that and if you don't get that supply in then miners start to become very very relevant very quickly again
0: right in terms of building up you know you know building up some of their own supply of Bitcoin to move later yeah. that makes sense yeah and so, you know, what are your thoughts on the rise of crypto related stocks? Because I mean, some of these things are just, I mean, I don't know if you're looking at them, but some of these things are going wild, like Marathon Patent Group, um, yeah. obviously MicroStrategy, but I'm going to separate that because I think that like has become a Bitcoin ETF or people are starting to look at it that way. But like, you know, Marathon Patent Group, all these mining companies, Voyager, I don't know if you're familiar with Voyager. Like, yep. right? They're they're going. I mean, their tokens going crazy. They're going crazy. I mean, why do you think this is happening? Why are these things outperforming Bitcoin? does it make sense. Um, yeah,
1: it's uh. I, I so actually, I wrote, I wrote like a, a really small tweet thread on this uh, maybe two weeks ago at this point, just comparing the returns. All of the crypto stocks have outperformed Bitcoin basically since 20K. Like they 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 they've out, they've outperformed pretty and, and significantly, pretty admirably, and yeah, yeah. Pr- pretty pretty significantly, right? And it's kind of interesting, right? You you wouldn't you wouldn't think that that would necessarily happen today. You might think that it would have happened in 2017, but not today because there's so many on ramps. There's so many ways for somebody to buy to buy to buy Bitcoin. People just really like people just really like buying their brokerage. Uh, people really like also really 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 like the concept of uh, creating Bitcoin for low cost. So that's why the mining mining stocks are doing well. Just talking to people anecdotally, uh, talking to institutions anecdotally. That seems that seems to be. Something that they really, really enjoy, and I also believe that there's there's just a lot of interest from retail right now to to punt Bitcoin, and so they're buying GBTC, they're buying they're buying MSTR as as a Bitcoin ETF proxy, and I think that the outperformance of MSTR up until three days, I guess it was almost a week ago at this point, up until a week ago was self reinforcing. So people looked at MSTR, they said, "Oh, when Bitcoin goes down." MSTR is saved by the tailwinds of the S&P. When Bitcoin goes up, MSTR acts as lever. So it's a hugely asymmetric play. That actually got, kind of that idea got nuked about a week ago when Bitcoin was down 3% and MSTR was down 20%. And that was because you had this massive run from MSTR where it just crazy outperformed Bitcoin. And you right. can actually, you can back out the premium. You can, you can back out what price you're buying Bitcoin for if you buy an MSTR, Right. right? Because you know you know their holdings. So you're paying a pretty massive premium to buy Bitcoin through MSTR. And I think that premium just kind of blew out and people realized that it blew out. And they were like, I don't know. I don't know about this. So I might have to sell it. What was interesting is that on the day that Bitcoin was up, uh, that broke, uh, broke through uh, 50K for the first time, the GBTC premium went to 10% and MicroStrategy was basically flattened on the day. And this is, I haven't looked super, super, super closely at the flows, but I'm fairly certain a lot of that was reallocation from MSTR to GBTC as people realized that MSTR because of the asymmetric blow off that it had, where it was down 21%, when Bitcoin was down 3%, they were worried that that trade had kind of come to a conclusion and that MSTR didn't offer that sort of of returns anymore and that it maybe actually was more risky to hold that in Bitcoin because of the premium. So they shifted their assets to GBTC because the GBTC premium went from five percent to ten percent a day with MS with MSTR flat, um, and then you know the, the premium started coming coming down a bit again. I think some of that at least was reallocation into GBTC. So I think things like like fake Bitcoin ETFs like M- MSTR are I'm I'm actually less inclined to say that those are going to do really well than levered than, than than things that could be construed as a levered play like a Riot or or a Marathon that people will look at it and they'll say, well, th- these guys like produce Bitcoin for no cost. So I'm going to buy that because that's- one, one of,
0: So one of the crazy things that I heard, I heard this from one of the largest mining you know, companies, I'm not going to say a name, but you know, top three or top four. And uh, they said right now, Marathon, I think it was Marathon, specifically, is trading at a 50 times multiple of their future mining equipment value. Not the mining equipment that they have today, the mining equipment that they believe that they may or may not get in the future, which is just absolutely wild. Yeah, man. <laughs> the
1: fundamentals in this market? It's, it's, why are you even talking to me about
0: this? Right. I, I mean, but that's just crazy. I mean, like, look, it I mean, you, I mean, it's, it's not
1: going to end well. It's not, it's not going to end well. And I would say, like, if you want Bitcoin exposure, you probably don't want to be buying those stocks as a proxy for Bitcoin exposure at this point. I think that maybe, maybe they'll continue to outperform, but you probably you probably want to be buying well, I, I can't give recommendations, but you, 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 you probably want to be allocated to, to things that are are, are slightly tangential place on that,
0: right? That makes sense. And so, quick two final questions. I mean, you talked about the GBTC thing. Do you think that trade is going to continue to exist if you're an institution?
1: No, once the ETF comes out, it's kind of over, in my opinion. It's why why are you gonna why why are you gonna allocate to to this GBTC that has that has a lockup <laughs> if, if an ETF doesn't? Um, and let's say even 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 if the ETF even if the ETF does. Uh, why would retail pay 10% premium for GBTC when they can just buy the ETF presumably at NAV because it's pro- presumably going to be arbitrage better, right? Right. So yeah, I, I think I think that that trade is likely coming to a close. There, you're probably you're probably going to have uh, less less institutions allocate the ETH ETF is probably further out, so that ETF trade might still might still exist, but I think the premiums are kind of they've reached a they've reached a point where it's not hugely Exactly. Uh, EV positive to allocate to to, to these things in my, in my opinion. Although one thing that one thing that's interesting is that a DeFi ETF is probably really far out. Uh, an index fund ETF
0: is probably really far out. So those trades potentially are in the mix still. And I think I think didn't Bitwise just release a DeFi? Um, they did. They did. Uh,
1: that, that's yeah. That, that's what I was referring to as a, as a potential.
0: And, and so my final question is just what has you most excited right now, either in the space in general as a trader or maybe nothing to do with crypto? Like what is just, a, you know, what are you excited about?
1: What, what am I, what am I excited about? Like right now, at this right, moment,
0: right now, right now, other is, than is how, is this how well
1: is how well the market is respecting like extremely, extremely simple trading strategies and extremely simple metrics. I'm loving it. It's, it's wonderful. Uh, and it's a, it's a testament to the amount of, uh, non-crypto native money in the space that's kind of just trading off you know your traditional market heuristics so that's awesome um basically everything that all, all the strategies that they that i was running in 2017 that didn't work they're they're now working again loving it uh, and then i on the uh on the in the long run i'm uh, pretty i'm pretty excited for how you know block tower the investment firm is is positioned and our, and our ability to really help the space grow really you know, in, invest and in, invest in the best projects. Invest in the things in the things that we really know about, and build out the infrastructure for this space. Because I think that's uh, that that's that's something that we really, really, really need. Is this space just needs uh, the space just needs better tooling, it needs better infrastructure, it needs you know, inv- it needs small small companies to to get the investment they need to to really to really grow. And you know, just excited to be part of that.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you. And where can everybody find you online? I mean, we'll put all the links and stuff.
1: Yeah. Awesome. You can just find me at Avi Fellman on Twitter and I appreciate you taking the time to to interview me. This is fun, Josh.
0: Awesome.